What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The great unemployment debate. Some states ended the extra $300 a week. Others didn't. So what's happened to the workforce since then? We have the latest data. Plus, the man who's helping to bring Bitcoin to El Salvador, and he's trying to help put currency back into cryptocurrency by making payments easier and cheaper. We speak to Jack Mallers. And coming up on Rapid Fire, getting into Reddit, giving up on Snap, and throwing in the towel on shorting Tesla. Mouthful there. Uh, but we begin with the markets. Christina Partsadevilis is here today with those numbers. Hi, Christina. Hello. So we are seeing equities mixed across the board, but this comes once again as the Dow and S&P 500 closed at record highs yesterday. So the number we're looking for for the S&P 500 is 44.74. The hotter, though, than expected producer price index showed U.S. wholesale prices rose sharply in July for the sixth straight month. 5.4%. But core inflation, you take out food and energy, is up only 0.3%. So it's still leaving questions about this inflation cresting or not. Energy, worst performer today. This after the International Energy Agency warned the spread of the Delta variant could slow the global oil demand. So I threw up some popular ETFs across the board just so you could see how that's all of them are doing. And now for some individual movers and shakers. Open Door, digital platform for residential real estate, soaring today 18%. And that's after reporting better than expected revenue. And then this one, specifically for the Wall Street bet guys, because they asked about it. This darling Clover Health, also soaring today. It was the second most mentioned stock on Reddit yesterday. There was a lot of unusual option activity on Wednesday before the health insurance provider reported revenue gains. You can see the share price up 10%. And last but not least, the dating app where women make the first move. Bumble saw its paying users jump 20% from a year earlier, and it doesn't always have to be about love. Bumble BFF for friends and Bumble Biz for business contacts will remain a key focus heading into the future. Kelly, love it. Christina, thank you. Christina Parts and Evelis. Our next guest is not falling into the trap of monitoring every word from the Fed or worrying about bond yields or even tech multiples. He says the best way to pick your next investment should push those concerns to the side and focus on key company metrics. And he's looking at one in particular. With me now is David Bonson, the chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. David, it's great to have you back. So drum roll, please. What do you think is the most important thing for investors to focus on these days? Well, I'm a big stickler for dividend growth, and I think that that free cash flow generation from which comes the growing sustainable dividends that we love to see is itself the mark of a great healthy company. So you kind of get two things at once. You get the actual benefit of the dividends into your account, either reinvesting for compounding, accumulation, or if you're an income-oriented investor, you're actually getting about three times the cash flow that you can get from the treasury market or from the S&P 500. 
but you're getting it all from what I believe are higher quality companies, better balance sheets and more stable business models. Do you think dividend stocks, David, tend to benefit um, from this kind of stock screen selection? In other words, that, uh, you know, people tend to want to own them because of the yield or are they generally not in favor because they're not, you know, the super high flyers, the fang stocks, you know, the trendy stocks of the day? There's definitely no question that dividend growth was less in favor relative to FANG over those uh, four or five years that FANG went to stratospheric valuations. But I think that over time, when you go back to like, let's say 1990, 30 years, the dividend growers isolated far outperformed the overall market. So the idea that people have to give up performance to go this route, I think is misguided, but it is true in certain quarters or even certain years. But fundamentally, we think you get better companies. And the reason why is you avoid a lot of the big things that go wrong. We can focus on the success stories in high growth, high tech, but there's plenty of failures, too. And you get to avoid a lot of those. One more question before I ask you for some specific names here. But is it getting harder to find these dividend stocks because stock buybacks have become such a huge way for companies to sort of reinvest cash? Yes. I mean, the one thing I would say is I don't believe a lot of companies doing high stock buybacks are reinvesting the cash. I think the bulk of it is going just to replace the stock they gave away in employee compensation. Hmm. So I think that stock buybacks are largely driven by executive compensation from options and restricted stock. But there's definitely no question, especially in the technology suite, that a lot of companies prefer stock buybacks to uh, or, or no capital return at all to dividends. However, if you look at the higher quality companies and you look at the more mature technology companies, you have not gotten the price return out of Cisco, Intel, IBM, but they got to a point where their cash flow generation was so high and the opportunities to go reinvest the cash so low, they became great dividend payers. Microsoft famously did it uh, right after the time of the dividend tax cut about 15 years ago. So we think there are plenty of opportunities, but we have to go screen for them. And more importantly, Kelly, we have to continue screening because we don't trust them to keep the dividend going. It's our job to monitor it, to make sure sure that that dividend growth is sustainable. So you mentioned IBM and Chevron, I I believe, but H&R Block, um, Midstream Energy Income ETF, the UMI is also on that list. For investors who listen to this, though, I I mean, I guess this is the sort of how you make the the point to, to work with your firm. But if they say, well, wait a minute, I want to be able to kind of pick something and not have to overly monitor it. You know, I, I get the sense of most people who want, you know, steady dividend income are not really wanting to have to go through and rescreen for this stuff all the time and figure out, you know, how much they should turn over their portfolios. Yeah, I actually don't like coming on TV to talk my book. And so you're kind of forcing me to because I agree. It isn't something that can be done, I think, passively. It's not something that is easily indexed. There are uh, passive ways to go about doing it, but you still end up with AT&T and General Electric and other names that end up cutting their dividend. Right. And so for us, that's heresy. We, We don't believe in it. But I do believe it requires professional management. I'm just not saying that to talk my book. It's sort of part of the philosophy of dividend growth. Or maybe why it hasn't been more popular, uh, you know, for people to do it themselves. Yeah, for sure. David, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. David Bonson with the Bonson Group. Well, yesterday we had that big auction of 10-year treasuries. Remember, today it's the 30-year up for auction. Let's get over to Rick Santelli, who's standing by with the results. Rick? Different day, completely different demand. This particular auction, 27 billion, 30-year bonds, the longest maturity on the Treasury coupon curve. 
The yield at the Dutch auction, 2.04. The one issued market was trading about a basis point and a half below that. Higher yield, lower price. We never like a lower price at a Dutch auction. So we gave it a D plus, dog plus. It really wasn't very good. Every metric was below 10 auction average. The pricing was messy. And I, I guess the moral to the story is, is that we had wholesaler PPI producer price inflation today on the hot side, in many ways hotter than CPI yesterday outside of the year over year. But in the end, it's about what investors think is coming. They went from thinking rates were too high and inflation would be at bay to 1.12% in a 10-year or well below 2% in a 30-year was just too low. And I think the fact that no one really showed up for this one does show there is some nervousness out there after these inflation numbers. Kelly, Rick, doesn't it seem inefficient, though, that yesterday you have a softer-than-expected CPI and probably the biggest demand for 10-year treasuries that we can remember? Today you have a little bit hotter PPI, and so no one shows up for the 30-year. I mean, it's crazy. If they had just waited a couple days for either one, you know, you would have had a completely different outcome. Well, you could wait a couple of days and completely avoid all auctions and just trade in the secondary market. But I think yesterday was unique. Uh, I know technicals to some seem like voodoo, but trust me, it's a big deal. And I think yesterday, the way the market played, how aggressive it went to the upside, it was a fade on the tenure. They decided it had gone too far too fast. Today, not so sure because... It was a bit sticky. Remember, we traded under 130 yesterday, and then the market came roaring back, expecting a hotter PPI, and it was correct. All right, Rick, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Meanwhile, jobless claims dropped for the third week in a row as the debate about boosted benefits and their impact on the worker shortage continues. Now, some states have already seen those extra benefits expire. What are we learning about what could happen across the country as a whole when these benefits are supposed to sunset after Labor Day? Steve Leisman is here with some new data for us. Steve? Yeah, Kelly, interesting stuff here. Data from two HR software companies, UKG and Homebase. They track the job markets. Wall Street tracks them. It shows that ending the $300 extended unemployment benefits has had no measurable effect on job growth. In fact, the states that kept the benefits in place showed better job growth in July. Homebase reported a strong 2.5% increase in hours worked and a 2.3% increase in employees for July for those states that kept the benefits. The 26 states that eliminated, they saw declines in both categories. Over at UKG, Dave Gilbertson writes, states continuing the additional benefit grew workforce activity in July two times faster than states that topped the benefit. Okay, what's going on here? Well, one explanation, states that kept the benefit already had stronger growth for most of 2021 as they bounced back from bigger job losses. Still, they maintained that edge and put more people to work even while keeping the benefit in place. On the other side, though, McDonald's CEO Chris Kempinski said in the company's earning call that they had seen an increase in applications from states that ended the benefit. So that could be boosting job search. But the current data do back up the idea, Kelly, the decision to take a job amid a pandemic that just won't quit. Well, it's a little more complicated than just a $300 check. And the timing, Steve, of the expiration now coming at the same time that people are supposed to be back at school, which maybe resolves a major child care issue, keeping people on the sidelines, could make it either much easier or maybe more complicated to figure out the impact this time around. So what are the other factors that could be going into this or explaining the difference in outcome? I think you hit a big one right there. The child care issue is a big one. Not only is it not available, say, for example, in the schools, but because we have a labor shortage, it's hard to find somebody to take care of the kids. That's one aspect of it. Health concerns are another. 
Um, in terms of the broader labor shortage, we've had a decline of immigration. We've had a whole bunch of people retire. Nobody is saying a $300 check is not a factor. It's certainly a factor, but it's just one of the factors that the best analysis I've seen, Kelly, says it's a combination of reasons why people are choosing not to work right at this time. And you're right. We'll get more clarity with the August data and then in September when the benefits expire nationwide. Yeah, it could be a big couple of months, uh, although, again, now it may be delayed because of Delta. Steve, we appreciate it, as always. Steve Leisman with the latest right. numbers for us. Coming up, the Elon of Elon, the short seller Carson Block penning his first investor letter with brutal honesty about his multi-year bet against Tesla and why he's finally exited it. But first, imagine launching an app that becomes so popular that the president of a Central American country asks you for your help to transform the nation's economy. Up next, we'll speak with the founder and CEO of Strike about using crypto for everyday payments. We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. After a steep downturn, Bitcoin is starting to make its way back. It's up 34% in the past month. It's around $44,000 right now. Not only that, but this week, Coinbase said its transactions continue to grow as its own share price recovers. And AMC just announced it'll accept Bitcoin as payment. But critics say Bitcoin still faces a lot of hurdles. And our next guest is betting on new innovations in the sector to help it hit its next big milestone, which includes moving money around faster and easier and paying bills a lot more cheaply. With me now is Jack Mallers. He is the CEO of Strike. Jack, it's great to have you. Welcome. Yo, Kelly, how are we? Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, Listen, I I actually want to start on one of the core points of confusion around Bitcoin and AMC's announcement this week. You know, in the U.S., this is still treated as property. It doesn't really make sense to pay for anything with Bitcoin, even if companies let you. You have to pay tax on it, right? So to me, do you see a realistic vision in the near term, where the U.S. is going to change the way it treats cryptocurrency? Because otherwise, even with the Lightning Network, what's the point? How much are people realistically going to be transacting? You know, Kelly, I agree. I think there needs to be a conceptual division between Bitcoin, the asset. This is this hard money, fixed supply, commodity-like asset. And Bitcoin, the network, there is a monetary network that allows Bitcoin to do things like payment standards, receiving standards, a clearing cash finality and physical bare instrument clearance. And that is innovative on its own right. And we can actually use that as an infrastructure piece similar to the Visa monetary network or the PayPal monetary network, but instead use the Bitcoin monetary network under the hood to do everything cheaper, better, faster. And so at Strike, we allow you to use this infrastructure rail 
with your Chase checking account or your Visa debit card without making you use and spend Bitcoin, the asset or the property as treated by the United States. So I think that division and that mental model is going to be really helpful. And we're going to see a lot of disruption with Bitcoin, the monetary network. And I want to stay on the regulatory theme for just another moment, because we've seen obviously some big moves in Congress this week. Do you have concerns about what's in the infrastructure bill? No, you know, I have a lot of thoughts, but my, my high level thoughts are human beings are tool builders. You know, innovation is inherent in us as a species, and it's what separates us from other primates. And you know, any country positioning against innovation uh, is not good, is against the best interest of humanity. Uh, and that's against the very principles America was built on. Uh, and so I think Bitcoin transcends, transcends race, gender, culture, countries, borders. Uh, and it really allows us to unite, I think, the efforts that is combined by all different types of parties and walks of life to get this right is inspiring. And we will get this right, not because we want to, but because we have to. And, and some argue that maybe there's even more of an opportunity now because of the way China has cracked down on Bitcoin mining, you know, that that sort of intellectual capital is looking for somewhere to go. Tell me about the Strike app and what differentiates it from a lot of the other payment and wallet apps. Um, I know you guys have had some news lately about maybe helping people get Bitcoin off the app more easily. I know you're trying to do lower fees even for uh, purchasing or transacting in Bitcoin than rivals like Coinbase. Where is this going and what's the use case for people who may not um, have experienced it yet? Yeah, so at Strike, we think that the Bitcoin network is the world's best monetary network, and it's not even close. The Bitcoin network is one of the more powerful innovations for money as a technology in human history. And so similar to the PayPal network or the Visa network or the Square monetary network, uh, we operate on top of the Bitcoin monetary network. We are a native neobank, like a Chime, like a Venmo, like a Cash App, but under the hood, we use Bitcoin. It allows us to do everything cheaper, faster, more global, and better. Uh, and so you're talking about a network that can achieve bare instrument cash finality anywhere in the world, 24-7, 365. Uh, it is the most inclusive monetary network of all time. And so that's where our innovation lies. And so with us rolling out products like being the cheapest place in America to buy Bitcoin, uh, we are taking a direct shot at those that are wasting resources on supporting other altcoins, dubbed shitcoins, uh, because we think the true innovation is a global, unified, singular, open source payment standard for the world. And that's where we spend our time and resources. Interesting. Let me ask you one stablecoin question before I, I want to ask you about what's the, sort of the latest in El Salvador. But on the stablecoin front, when you guys were getting off the ground, whether it was there or elsewhere, you've had to use Tether. Can you explain why stablecoins are so important to Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, you know, things that happen in that monetary universe? And even with the latest revelations from USDC about how much it's backed one for one, what is the, the need? What does the Bitcoin community need in terms of some kind of digital coin? Can the Fed provide it? Or, you know, is this kind of a major headwind ultimately to kind of crypto going more mainstream? Yeah, so here's our take at Strike, and it may be unique, it may be different, but this is where we sit is that we're building a product that can be used by all 8 billion people. That's because the Bitcoin monetary network is the most inclusive network of all time when it comes to money. And so we're building products not only for the developed world, not only for those in Chicago and New York, but we're building for those in third world countries and developing countries. These people don't have bank accounts. They don't have access to any monetary network. And so how can we give them the Chase checking account, the Visa debit card? Uh, we need some form of cash collateral. 
And a stable coin in this particular instance allowed us to deliver that beautiful experience of using this monetary infrastructure as rails under the hood and exposing them to a dollar-like balance. And so we used it to optimize for the experience, particular for those in the developing world who don't have access to maybe the Chase tracking account that I do. So a necessary evil? I think it was a necessary solution. There's no reason to dub anything good or evil. Uh, we optimized to build the best experience for our consumers. We would love to innovate and continue to improve on that. But at the time, that was what we deemed best. Understood. So let's talk about El Salvador for a moment, because we are about a month away from its implementation of Bitcoin as another form of legal tender in the country, along with the U.S. dollar. Um, people have had a chance now to kind of hear the full sort of wild story about how that came to be in your relationship uh, down there and the announcement that kind of shocked the world at the Bitcoin Miami conference. Um, what do you say to the critics, Jack, who, who insist that El Salvador is using you and Strike and Bitcoin um, to pursue its own political ends, which are you know, not the highfalutin ones you've been describing. Um, I, what do you want me to say, Kelly? Everyone uh, has an opinion, and uh, I care about none of them. Here's the, here's the reality. How about someone else try and be the sitting president of a Central American country like El Salvador? How do you deal with the absolute asinine monetary expansion that's happening at central banks right now? And how do you deal with the fact that over 70% of your citizens don't have financial access, don't have basic human freedoms, and cannot live a high quality of life. We as human beings designed the perfect money, a money that has a fixed supply, a known issuance, and can be defended against the macro environment we're in today. We designed a monetary network that's open, inclusive to all, only requires a mobile phone and an internet connection, and gives the unbanked access to a monetary network that, by the way, is the best we've seen in human history. To me, I question those that question that. It is an absolute no-brainer, and it doesn't come to me as a surprise. I think what El Salvador is doing is tremendously brave, and they are the first of many. These are two fundamental problems that the human species has faced with money. Money is the most viral product of all time, one of the most shared products in human history. It's akin to water in living a high quality of life. And he's giving his citizens hope. And I don't see any problem with that. And those that have a problem with that, I seriously question their motives and principles. Well, maybe we'll see you down in Bitcoin Beach uh, as this all you know, goes into place. You will. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today and going over a lot of these issues. We hope to check in again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Jack Mallers is the CEO of ZapTech and Strike. And coming up, a conversation on the national student debt crisis. With President Biden extending the freeze on student loans for what they say is a final time, how are Americans going to pay back the trillion and a half dollars they owe? We'll discuss that right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Back to the exchange, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets, which are well off the session lows. The Dow is down 132, but it's only down 46 right now. The S&P positive by four. The Nasdaq is up by eight. So it's turned green as we move throughout the session here. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. 
Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio saying that outgoing Governor Andrew Cuomo should face, quote, further accountability for sexual harassment charges and reporting of nursing home deaths early in the pandemic. De Blasio also questioning why Cuomo is waiting to resign in two weeks. Well, I think people should keep a very close eye on him after everything he's done. Um, and I don't know why it needs to be 12 days, honestly. I think we're all ready to move on, and I think the quicker we can move on, the better at this point. A new study questions how clean hydrogen fuel really is. The lead author, author telling The New York Times that hydrogen fuels can worsen climate change, saying that because much of it is produced with natural gas, it creates substantial amounts of carbon dioxide in the process. And in Chicago, officials have found 203 cases of COVID connected to the big Lollapalooza music festival with no hospitalizations or deaths reported yet. Some 385,000 people attended the four-day event. Health officials say that the number of cases is not a surprise and they do not expect it to become a super spreader event. And on the news, holding big public events safely and the new efforts to get COVID shots to holdouts tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. But, uh, Kelly, that's quite the headline there, that Lollapalooza apparently was not a super spreader event because, of course, there was so much concern about the city continuing to hold it in the midst of Delta and rising cases. I think you're just trying to get there, Rahel. I mean, that's what I'm detecting is a, what you, you wishing you were out there. I've been to Lollapalooza, <laughs> and it is a great yeah. festival. <laughs> you caught me. Yeah. Rahel, thank you very much. We'll yep. see you next hour, Rahel Solomon. Up next, Reddit's raise blocked on Tesla and Snap is sapped. It's all coming up on Rapid Fire in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should also be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire and here to break down the headlines with me. Dear Jabosa, CMC.com tech editor Steve Kovac. Larry's in the bedroom, I think he said. Uh, and Neelai Patel of The Verge. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. First up, this is possibly my favorite story today. Reddit is raising a new round of funding led by Fidelity. They're looking to eventually go public. The social media platform raised $410 million. They said Fidelity gave them an offer they couldn't refuse. They weren't even looking for the capital. Their valuation is now over $10 billion, up from six a few months ago in an interview with the New York Times. Reddit's co-founder and CEO Steve Huffman said, as I just mentioned, Fidelity made us an offer we couldn't refuse. We are still planning on going public, but we don't have a firm timeline there yet. All good companies should go public when they can. But Neelai... If Reddit were public, wouldn't this be the ultimate Reddit army stock? I mean, right? Wouldn't users of the platform itself bid this thing up to, like, you know, very enjoyable levels, I would have to imagine? Yeah, I mean, the Reddit stock army keeps betting on things it likes or things it wants to to mess with. And they certainly love messing with Reddit. I think the big question for Reddit is they keep taking all this money. They keep saying they're going to invest it in the product. The Reddit product has looked the same forever. I can't tell you one improvement <laughs> they've made thing, to though, it. Right? What are they using this money for? No, but I'm, Steve, I'm glad it doesn't look any different. It's, it's something reassuringly familiar about just the plain text and all of that. But I guess my point is, if I'm Fidelity, Steve, I'm thinking, sure, I'll bid your value up to $10 billion. You're going to take this thing public and it, it could be worth. Do, do the fundamentals even matter? Saw this with Robinhood, too. Remember, our colleague Andrew Sorkin asked the CEO of Robinhood, are you at risk of becoming a meme stock yourself? And I I can't even imagine a more meta meme stock than Reddit (laughs) going completely viral and just juicing itself up. I mean, a 10 billion valuation right now sounds quaint if and when that happens, for sure. Deirdre, I'll give you the last word. 
Nile, the whole point is for it to look the same, right? What is a key part of a meme stock is sort of a throwback and what Reddit hasn't changed since the 90s or something. I'm not sure, but I agree with you. It doesn't look any different than it has ever since I started using it. Kelly, what was interesting to me, sign of the times. Fidelity gave them an offer that they couldn't refuse an institutional investor. I mean, I expected this from SoftBank or Tiger Global, but Fidelity, that's interesting and perhaps a sign of how fierce competition is to invest in these hot startups and perhaps how frothy the market is? Yeah, I, again, I'm going out on a limb here, but I almost wonder if, if their institutions are saying, we're trying to identify the next meme stock ahead of time <laughs> to benefit from that you know, liquidity Good event. Point. And Reddit would seem such an obvious one. But let's move along and talk about here's maybe my free, the... Here's my free revenue idea for Reddit. Go ahead, Neil. They Eli. should just start charging BuzzFeed for access to the comments. <laughs> Every third BuzzFeed article <laughs> is just a Reddit roundup. Just start charging them the money. Free idea. B2B, always the best way. Way to go. Um, perhaps the original Reddit uh, stock or meme stock, I should say, is Tesla. And today, Carson Block's bets against it are gone. The short seller didn't mince words criticizing Musk. In his first shareholder letter, which DealBook saw, he said his bets against the car maker, it's over. He said they've been, quote, sent to heaven. Um, Neil, I, I, I'll sort of ask for your take on this one as well. Um, because what he's basically acknowledging here with Tesla, and this is very similar to what we are just discussing, is that the fundamentals really don't matter. This is kind of always a hopium stock. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, between the valuation, between the amount of capital they have, between the absolute loyalty of not only Tesla fans but Elon Musk fans, they're in a stable position because you can't knock the confidence down. You can't say, well, they're not selling as many cars Ford and Jeep and whoever else are rolling out cars. They're selling really well. Uh, Jeep actually just raised the price of its hybrid Wrangler because it's selling so well. Ford is selling lots of Mustang Mach-E's. Sure, that's like normal competition. Is that going to knock one Tesla buyer off of their Tesla? Probably not. And I think that's going to be the case with Tesla, even as the competition really comes and we find out how valuable their incredible first mover advantage really is. And it's also, Steve, worth reminding that this stock before, you know, pre-split was under $200 not that long ago. So it completely levitated, but it's stayed up there. And I can only imagine, you know, how much that's caused short sellers in terms of losses. Yeah, I mean, the shorts are eating it right now, of course, and they're taking a bath in, in those calls. And we've heard more about that today, the Elon of Elon, as, as we heard. But that's that's the thing. That's also the risk, isn't it? When so much is tied to the personality and whims of one guy who, you know, is on Saturday Night Live, who is uh, posting Doge memes and so forth. Obviously, his behavior has had zero impact on that. But what happens if he decides to divert his energy elsewhere on right. the last earnings call last week? He said, I'm not going to do these earnings calls anymore. I have other stuff, more important things to focus on. What happens if he pulls a Bezos and decides, I'd rather go to space than work on the next Tesla model? <laughs> that, a- that becomes the risk, right? What happens? Yeah. I, I, so, Deirdre, I'll, I'll have you close this one out, but I completely, completely agree. I guess I would put it slightly differently from Steve, which is that Musk has proven extremely effective. As he said in that deposition or when he was in that lawsuit a short time ago, his own tweets lower the company's advertising costs because they serve or, or even selling costs because they serve as marketing. They don't have to advertise as much. So totally to Steve's point, if Musk ever had to step away from Tesla a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I think that they lose a benefit as a result. Yeah. For some of all the great companies, though, what would happen if they stepped away? Remember when Steve Jobs 
um, passed away, everyone thought that Tim Cook wouldn't do as good a job. So there's always that risk. But Kelly, I was I was kind of laughing at that interview as well because Carson Block is a character as well. Yeah. He sort of was eating humble pie, but then he kept talking about how Elon Musk was a bad person and the only reason <laughs> Tesla is here is because of its capital base. And I just don't think that that's entirely fair. When you talk about Tesla being the OG meme stock, (laughs) it has actually grown its business with that capital. And certainly the jury is still out for other meme stocks like AMC, GameStop, even Robinhood. I mean, if they can do what Elon Musk has done with the capital that he's been able to raise, then fine. I think Andrew Ross Sorkin calls it manifest destiny, but I think that Elon Musk has fulfilled that so far. Manifest destiny of the meme stocks. That's fantastic. Okay, before we go, definitely want to get your all's two cents on what's going on at Snapchat, where people are fleeing uh, the platform for YouTube and TikTok as they say money is drying up. Creators have complained that a million dollar a day payouts Snapchat promise no longer exist, and there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to who's getting paid and how much. Snap shares are down about one and a half percent today, still up 50 percent this year. Deirdre, I know you guys spoke about this this morning. What are your conclusions? Well, if I had a tiny violin, I might play it. And it's not I do feel for these creators who were used to getting more money. But the reason that Facebook and YouTube and some of the other platforms, new platforms have proliferated and are putting the focus on creator monetization, I think goes back to Snap leading the way and paying out, you know, reasonable high fees to creators at the beginning. That has really paved the way for others to do so for more competition. So the idea that it's pulling back shouldn't be unreasonable. I think that creators have to find other platforms, other ways to monetize. The ecosystem as a whole has become a lot bigger. And for a company like Facebook, it's kind of become existential. How do they pay their their creators? Sure. Neelai, quick last word on this. Well, if you're a creator and you think that YouTube and Facebook and Instagram aren't going to be unpredictable and mess with your money more than Snap. Like, you got a rude wake-up call coming ahead of you. I would also say that the demise of Snap is often predicted, but it just keeps doing better and better. Yes, I have to admit, I mean, the the stock performance this year and the way that it's still entrenched uh, with a lot of the younger demographic has been so impressive. Uh, Million-dollar payouts or not. Guys, thank you all today. We appreciate it. Uh, Our best to Larry, Steve, Deirdre Bosa, Steve Kovac, and Neelai Patel. (laughs) U.S. households are carrying $15 trillion worth of debt. More than 10% of that is student loans. And while those payments are on hold right now, President Biden says this is the last moratorium. So what's going to happen to this money? Can it be paid back? And how do we get to a better system for paying for college? That's next on The Exchange. Welcome back. President Biden just extended the moratorium on student loan payments for a final time until January. He calls the freeze a critical lifeline. To give you an idea of just how critical, take a look at these numbers. Student loan debt has surged to over $1.6 trillion, and only two-thirds of that is expected to be paid back. That leaves taxpayers on the hook for around $500 billion of it, which is almost the amount of subprime mortgage debt during the housing crash. And this crisis is the focus of a new book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. Joining me now is the author, Wall Street Journal reporter Josh Mitchell. Josh, it's great to have you. And I, I mean, this is one of those issues that we all sort of wake up every day and know it's there and know it's not going away. But in, in a way, the pandemic had an opening to solve it. We've been throwing tons of money everywhere. Do you think we've done anything to solve it um, or have we made the problem even potentially worse? No, even even prior to the pandemic, when the economy was pretty strong, about one in five people were behind on their student loans. So right now, if when the pandemic is over, Unemployment is still pretty high. It's still higher than it was before the pandemic. So we can't kid ourselves into thinking that more people are going to uh, be better with their student loan payments after this.
Right. Now, I thought I just saw the other day that they're moving towards maybe there's a bill in, in Congress somewhere that would allow people to discharge student loan debt and bankruptcy. And what do you think the implications would be if that step were, ta- were finally taken? Because now, as everybody knows, it's one of the only things you really can't discharge. Sure. So, well, it's not impossible to discharge. It's very hard to. Um, now, this would help a lot of families. There are a lot of people who have gotten into debt, into debt that they can't repay. And interest is accruing on these loans. So for a lot of people, the balance is growing because they can't repay it. So loosening bankruptcy law would help those families. It would not address this issue, though, that credit in this market is very free in the student loan program, meaning if you forgive student debt now or if you allow more people to declare bankruptcy, it'll help those people. But what about next year's students? The government is still giving families essentially a blank check, which means with with the press of a computer key, they can still get tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Yeah, it's predatory. I mean, if the same behavior were applied to people who shouldn't be taking on debt in the private space, they would be hauled before Congress or have to explain to themselves why they would trap people with debt they knew they couldn't pay back, but but nothing happens in this situation. So I guess, and one of the things I loved about the article uh, that I've seen from the book is it explains how we got into this mess, how at first Congress was just kind of backing the debt in the early 80s and then, you know, Sally May got too involved and then they kind of had to dial that back. And then all of a sudden it was the Treasury was the only game in town. So how do we keep college from costing one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year? Well, the, so before the student loan program program came into existence, a lot of schools actually used their own funds to make loans to students and default rates were low. And this is there's a very simple reason why um, when schools suffer consequences for charging too much and getting students into too much debt, they're, they're less likely to charge so much. In other words, if schools know that students are bound to default on those loans and that schools will be on the hook for that money, they're less likely to get them into unrepayable debt. It was only when the student loan program put taxpayers on the hook for these loans that default rates really started to rise pretty quickly. And I think both members of, members of both parties seem to agree on this concept. Republicans focus on nonprofit colleges, the, the Democrats focus on for-profit colleges, but they both broadly agree that schools, if they want to reform this program, need to suffer more consequences for charging such high prices. And if you require schools to put up some of their own money instead of simply relying on taxpayers to make these loans, there's evidence to show you, you can rein in these prices. And there <laughs> is maybe a way out, a path forward. Uh, could be quite some time before we get there. Maybe a crisis itself will have to uh, to sort of be the catalyst here. Josh, thanks so much for your reporting and for bringing it to us. It's good to see you. Sure, thank you. Josh Mitchell's new book is The Debt Trap. He works for The Wall Street Journal. Shares of Golden Nugget Online Gaming are up nearly 60% this week as the company became the latest takeover target in the sports betting consolidation. We'll introduce you to a company that could be the next one right after this. Meanwhile, lumber is going under. The rally is a distant memory, and we're at nine-month lows. Is the bottom finally in? Stay tuned. Welcome back. It's been a busy week of deals in the sports gambling space, and Britain's Entain could be next. The company owns Ladbrokes, and in reporting results this morning, said that soccer's Euro 2020 was the biggest sporting event in its history. Contessa Brewer is here with more. Contessa. Oh, Kelly, Entain has a lot to crow about here. The U.K.-listed global gaming company is partners with MGM Resorts in the sports betting iGaming platform BetMGM. 
and it has just taken over as the number two market leader in the United States. Now, Entain, as you mentioned, is probably best known as the owner of Ladbrokes in Europe, but it's already operating in 27 markets around the globe and has its sights set on 50 more. Its new CEO has been on the job for only six months, but she has some big plans for how to capture a quarter of what she anticipates will be a $160 billion total addressable market, announcing today that Entain is acquiring Unicorn Esports. We actually believe that we can build a global scalable platform that is fully compliant and taking care of all the different areas of player protection and responsible gaming and really also interacting with the regulators in terms of how we build this for the future. So that's really why we see there's a hugely exciting opportunity for us because that platform doesn't exist today. We believe we can have a first mover advantage here in building this fully integrated platform for the esports fans. Already, esports has about 450 million viewers, they say, that they could bring on board. And Tain's second quarter earnings beat expectations. They announced significant cost savings initiatives and, of course, the new outreach on esports. So this, I think, might be somewhat of a gaming gauntlet thrown down by Entain because MGM Resorts made an $11 billion bid to buy its partner in January. The Entain board scoffed. It said, look, that offer is way too low. We're going to watch to see if MGM reapproaches with a bid that is closer to what Entain thinks it's worth. I reached out to MGM. They would not comment, although on the earnings call, CEO Bill Hornbuckle said he values the partnership with Entain, but his M&A strategy does not rely on only one company, Kelly. Is there a little bit, though, of a flurry of deals right now in a space that is relatively new but maybe quickly consolidating? And if so, you know, you have to imagine it's going to kind of consolidate down to a couple of key players. You, you know, part of it is that there's this big, mad, I, I call it a gold rush, right? This is like the wild rush. You have all these people rushing because they hear there's gold in them, thar hills. There is not enough gold for all of these players. And what they think they can earn is exceeding what the total addressable market currently is. Plus, you have to have capital to compete. You have to have a marketing budget. You have to have a way to move forward. That's why you're seeing so much of this consolidation happen, because for some of these smaller players, they bring some tech to the table. They're bringing some customer base to the table or something alluring, but they don't have the cash to play. Very, very good point. Maybe they're all hoping uh, for numbers that, you, you know, add up to more than the whole market. Contessa, we appreciate it very much. Contessa Brewer following all the latest for us. Up next, the rise and fall of lumber prices down 70 percent in the past three months. Is this an example of transitory and how has supply caught up to demand? We'll talk about that next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Lumber prices have been falling steadily for the past three months after a huge rally. And this morning, new PPI data provided further evidence that inflation may be peaking. But home prices haven't been affected, at least not yet. The home builder ETF is sitting near record highs. Here to make sense of it all is Sherwood Lumber CEO OO Kyle Little. Kyle, it's great to speak with you again. The last time we checked in, we thought that maybe this drop had already run its course, but it keeps going. Does that surprise you? I think, uh, thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I think uh, just to talk about where we were before, we, we kind of indicated that we were uh, moving uh, very low uh, in this uh, sell-off uh, back uh, in early uh, July when we talked about the market since uh, fell back another 28%. 
but we also stated that uh, the prices would likely see, follow a more seasonal pattern this year, uh, which they have, and uh, start to see a bottoming out somewhere between two and three weeks from that time period. Uh, that has happened. Uh, we've been steadily trading in a very narrow price range uh, at the bottom uh, 10 to 15 percent of that uh, of that sell off. And I think today we continue to see that um, uh, uh, support level starting to be in, you know, lumber in particular, specifically the derivative that's tracked is only one piece of the pie. Uh, there's so many other products that are involved specifically to forest products that had to start following that trend. They have done so. And now we're starting to see a much, uh, much more renewed interest in uh, purchasing uh, fiber as we move into uh, later in this third quarter. So what do you think the right price of lumber is these days, Kyle? I mean, it, we're looking around 500. Does that make economic sense to you? And how have we had supply catch up to demand? Well, we I would say as far as the price structure goes, it makes absolute sense. In the, uh, if we look back to pre-pandemic, uh, the marketplace was in a very uh, a linear and vertical trend channel. And the sell-off that we had in, in early uh, uh, Q1 uh, or late Q1, early Q2 of uh, 2020 relative to COVID, you know, took us out of that. We went, have since moved back. Uh, and then because of the supply disruptions, we moved to an all-time unprecedented high. Uh, now we're going through this uh, equilibrium stage or search for equilibrium. And what we are finding is the support level that follows uh, the bottom end of that continual trend pre-COVID. Uh, it's very, very uh, bullish. It's also one uh, that would be uh, make a lot of us in the lumber world feel much more comfortable uh, going and rebuilding inventories uh, here for the second half of this year with the, the projected uh, demand that we are now seeing. So in other words, you think that the price should still be structurally higher for a while. And can you kind of tell us about the broader universe? You mentioned other forest products. Is lumber in its own world because the run-up was so pronounced? Um, how does this compare with other inputs and uh, sort of the, where you see demand from customers? Well, what's interesting is lumber is that one component, and specifically the derivative, that went up roughly 400% from in the move uh, prior to it and now has come down uh, since. Other products in the forest products world, specifically panels, those would be four by eight sheets that would go into the wall or roof construction. Those saw anywhere from 700 to 800% price increases. They have now since come back to what we would see in pre-pandemic uh, levels that would be in much more, more normal range. And when I say we over the last three weeks, we see renewed interest, that renewed interest is now turning into actual orders and people placing business here for the second half of this year, most notably in the, uh, uh, the commercial segment and into the multifamily unit segments. Commercial and multifamily. So not so much from the single family. I wouldn't say single family has fallen off as much, but it is still very, very solid and a pronounced demand. But multifamily, which really went away when we, we really talked about in early May and into the June where we said that we should wait for lumber prices to move off. That segment really took a took a break. Now, over the last three to six weeks, we've seen a substantial change uh, in that in those customers and those developers sentiment. And they are booking projects here for the the second half of this year and into 2022. That's fascinating. Kyle, as always, thank you for letting us check in and see how business is going as we explain one of the most unusual parts of the market this year. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. Kyle Little. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.